It's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. want a well-rounded understanding of Jesus, there are six books in the Bible that are very important to start with. And the reason you should start with these six books is really because they predominantly focus on Jesus. And and each one of these different books shares kind of a a different aspect uh, of who Jesus is. And if you put all the six books together, you get this much uh, better, well-rounded, complete picture of Jesus. And as you could probably guess, four of those books books that predominantly focus on Jesus are the four Gospels, but you know each one of those Gospels kind of focuses on a different aspect of Jesus. There's some overlap, and, and they share some um, similar things, but there's really a focus to each Gospel that's kind of dealing with a different aspect of who Jesus is. Matthew uh, focuses on Jesus as the Messiah. Mark focuses on Jesus as the servant. Luke focuses on Jesus as the perfect man and our Savior, and as we know as we studied just recently through the book of John, John focuses on Jesus as God. And so as you take just those four Gospels together, you see these wonderful aspects of Jesus as Messiah and servant and perfect man, Savior uh, and God. But, you know, Jesus is more than that. Uh, And so there are other books of the Bible that predominantly focus on Jesus that are important as well for you to study. And another one of those books uh, is the book of Revelation. Now notice the title of this book is Revelation Singular, not Revelations Plural. Uh, A lot of people, when they look at it, they think it's a bunch of different revelations of different things that are going to happen in the end times. That's not what the book about at all. It's a revelation singular of Jesus Christ. He is the focus. It's all about him. uh, And it's a great book that deals with Jesus and reveals a lot of different aspects of who Jesus is. You see, the Gospels deal with Jesus as he was on earth. Revelation deals with Jesus as he is now on his throne. And it starts with this powerful picture of what Jesus is like on his throne. Then it moves on to seven amazing messages that Jesus gives to his church. Uh, And then it just deals with how Jesus is going to ultimately bring tribulation against an ungodly world that has rejected him. Uh, Jesus' second coming. Jesus ruling as king. Jesus establishing or first judging the world and then establishing a new heaven and a new earth for all those who believe in him to live in. Uh, And so when you bring the four gospels together and you bring revelation together, you got all these wonderful things about Jesus, all these different aspects of who he is, but Jesus is even more than that as well. And so another important book that really is predominantly focused on Jesus is the book that we're going to start studying this morning, and that is the book of Hebrews. 
Hebrews is one of my favorite books of the Bible, and one of the reasons I love it so much is because it gives great detail about an aspect of Jesus that really no other book of the Bible gives these details. Some of the books kind of reference this reality, but they don't talk about it. They don't give the detail about this aspect of Jesus that the book of Hebrews does, and that aspect of Jesus is Jesus as our high priest. You know, this is something that is just a powerful picture, a wonderful truth that Hebrews spends many chapters going into great detail about Jesus, the high priest for you and me, which really no other book of the Bible does. And so when you look at the different aspects of Jesus that you see in the Gospels, that you see in Revelation, you're missing out if you don't see this truth of Jesus here in the book of Hebrews. But it's not just that Jesus is our high priest. There's also more in this book. But John Calvin wrote this. There is indeed no book in Holy Scripture which speaks so clearly of the priesthood of Christ, which so highly exalts the virtue and dignity of that only true sacrifice which He offered by His death, which so abundantly deals with the use of ceremonies as well as their abrogation, and in a word so fully explains that Christ is the end of the law. So you have the Gospels revealing that Jesus is the Messiah, the servant, the perfect man, uh, the Savior and God. You have Revelation revealing that Jesus is on His throne. He's leading His church. He's coming again to rule and reign. We'll spend eternity with Him. And then you come to Hebrews and you see Jesus as our high priest. But there's something more about Hebrews. Something that more than any other book of the Bible, Hebrews deals with the greatness of Jesus. How Jesus is greater than pretty much anything else. That's really the emphasis of Hebrews, wanting to demonstrate how great Jesus truly is. And really, there's no other book of the Bible that emphasizes the greatness of Jesus more than the book of Hebrews. And those are the two reasons why this is one of my favorite books, just seeing that aspect of Jesus being the high priest, but also just seeing over and over these comparisons of Jesus and something else, and just seeing how Jesus always comes out greater than everything else. R.C. Sproul wrote this, If I were cast into prison and allowed but one book, it would be the Bible. If I were allowed only one book of the Bible, it would be the epistle to the Hebrews, because it contains our most comprehensive discussion of the redemption wrought for us in the sacrifice of Jesus. Kent Hughes wrote this, The book of Hebrews conveys a double dose of spiritual power. It not only presents the greatness of Christ in ways no other New Testament writing does, but it repeatedly demands a heart response from the reader. No one can study Hebrews and not grow spiritually and come face to face in a new way with Christ. As we study the book of Hebrews, we are going to see the greatness of Jesus in a way that no other book of the Bible addresses it. And I completely agree with Ken Hughes' statement that no one can study Hebrews and not grow spiritually and come face to face in a new way with Christ. And that's my prayer, that's my hope, that as we uh, come and study this book, there's just a new appreciation that we have for Jesus, that we see Him for as great as He actually is, that we recognize this wonderful aspect of Him being high priest, and in it all, we just grow in our spiritual maturity to become more like Him.
Now, before we start digging into this amazing book, like I do when we start any new book of the Bible, I want to share a little bit of background information and also just give you kind of an outline of the book so we can see where we're going to be headed as we study this book. And, you know, Hebrews is interesting because most of the books of the Bible, it's very clear who wrote it, and it's also very clear who it's written to. And that's usually just in the very first few verses we hear, you know, Paul to the Ephesians or, or whatever it may be, that that's typically what we see in New Testament books. But that is not the case with Hebrews. The author never tells us who he is. So we actually don't know who wrote Hebrews. And this has led scholars for you know, years to kind of debate and discuss you know, who is the actual author of Hebrews. And the majority of scholars lean to the fact that it was Paul. But the bottom line is we don't know. Uh, and so you know, we can come to kind of our guesses, but that's all they really are. And that shouldn't be a problem for us. You see, the reason that we trust in the Bible is not because of the human author that wrote it. You know, I don't trust in the book of Romans because Paul wrote it. I don't trust in the book of John because John wrote it. I don't put trust in the book of Luke because Luke wrote it, and they're such amazing men, and, and we should trust because they wrote it. No, we trust in the Bible not because of the human author, but because of the spiritual author. We believe that the Bible is inspired by the Spirit of God, that he inspired men to write it, and that is why we trust it, because it's God-breathed, not man-breathed. And so it doesn't really matter which human author it was that wrote Hebrews. The bottom line is we can answer the question, who wrote the book of Hebrews, with the most important answer, God did. And that's all we need to know and all we need to be confident in so that we can trust what it says to you and I. But the... The author not only doesn't actually reveal who he is, but he doesn't outright say who he's writing to. Uh, and so that leaves you kind of like, well, well who uh, are the recipients of this letter? Now, when you read through the letter, there's lots of clues about these recipients, uh, lots of important details that gives you kind of an idea of what was going on with them and why this author wrote to them to begin with. Uh, and so one of the things that we know is that they were Hebrews. And the reason we know this is because there's a lot of references in this letter to uh, the Hebrew customs and the Hebrew laws, uh, many references to Old Testament prophets and priests, uh, the covenant, the sacrificial system. And the author of this does not go into great deal explaining these things, which shows that he just assumes his readers already know that. And the only readers who would have already know all these things are people who were Jewish, people who were Hebrews. And that's why this book has that name. You know, we give names to books based off of basically who they're written to, like Romans written to the Romans or Galatians written to the people in Galatia. Well, here they're written to people who were Hebrew. Uh, and that's why we have the name Hebrews, uh, because it's focused on a group of Hebrew Christians. And we know that they were Christians because the author refers to them as holy brethren and partakers of the heavenly calling. Only people who can be uh, referred to as holy brethren and partakers of the heavenly calling are those who have already put their trust in Jesus Christ. And so we know it's written to these Jewish Hebrew believers in Christ. Another thing that we know is that they're going through persecution because of their belief in Jesus. This has led a lot to believe that uh, it's very likely that they were Hebrews in Rome, uh, because that's where the persecution was growing the worst. At the time of this writing, we believe that it was at least before 70 AD, because there's no reference to the destruction of Jerusalem uh, and the temple, which you know would have been, as it's talking about the sacrificial system, saying, well, it's all gone because it's 
it's been destroyed. So there's no reference to that. So it leads us to believe it was written before 70 AD uh, and most likely to people you know, being persecuted in Rome. Now, another thing that we see with this letter is that there's a lot of warnings about drifting away, about departing from the Christian faith. And something important to note here is that these Jewish Christians, you know, they left Judaism in order to join Christianity and and accept Christ. But in Judaism, they really weren't being persecuted. And now that they've become Christians, they are being persecuted. And one of the issues that these believers have is they're being tempted. You know, they're starting to feel like, you know what, maybe we should go back to Judaism. You know, we weren't persecuted then. I think life was a little easier then. You know, maybe we should just abandon Christianity, abandon Jesus, and kind of go back to the way things used to be under Judaism so we can kind of escape the persecution that comes. And so the author of this letter is wanting to address that kind of thinking and encourage these believers not to forsake Jesus, not to forsake Christianity, not to go back to Judaism, but to continue to follow Jesus even in the midst of persecution. And the way the author does this is by showing how much greater Jesus is than everything that you can consider in Judaism. He's going to have these constant contrasts of showing you, you want to go back to Judaism, let me show you how much greater Jesus is than this aspect of Judaism, and that aspect of Judaism, and that aspect of Judaism. So it would just seem so foolish to say, why would I leave the greatness of Jesus to go to something far less than he is? You see, in Judaism, they had great people they followed, great priests they followed, a great covenant that they followed, a great sanctuary and sacrificial system they followed. But Hebrews wants us to see Jesus is greater than all of those things in Judaism. And because of that, the reader should continue to follow Jesus and live a greater life in him. So that's a little bit of background information about this letter. And now I want to share with you an outline that kind of gives you a perspective of where we're headed and what the overall picture of this book is all about. So the main theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is greater. And really, because Jesus is greater, it should cause us to live a greater life in Jesus. And the author shares with us three main areas in which Jesus is greater. The first area is Jesus is a greater person than all the people in Judaism. Jesus is greater than all the Old Testament prophets that God sent to speak to Israel. He's greater than Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Elijah, Elisha. The list goes on and on. Jesus is greater than all those prophets. He's also greater than all the angels that God sent to guard and and help the Israelites. He's greater than Moses that God sent to deliver the Israelites. He's greater than Joshua that God sent to lead the Israelites into battle. And so as the recipients of this letter are struggling with the thought of going back into Judaism, going back under the prophets and these great leaders of the, the Jewish faith, Hebrews makes clear that Jesus is so much greater than those prophets, so much greater than those leaders, which is a huge challenge to these readers. And it poses this question, why would you want to abandon Jesus who is greater to go back under these men who are lesser than he? 
And the author gives a warning not to doubt Jesus, not to have unbelief about Jesus and the greatness that he possesses and not to leave Jesus to go back to Judaism. And so this first main area in Hebrews where it focuses on the greatness of Jesus is dealing with Jesus is a great person, greater person than all the great people in Judaism. The second main area where Jesus is greater is he is a greater priest than all the priests in Judaism. Now, the greatest priest of all, the one that would have been you know, most highly esteemed in Judaism is the very first priest, the high priest, Aaron. And Jesus is much greater than Aaron, a much greater high priest than Aaron. And there's this list of, of why Jesus is greater. He's greater in sympathizing with our, with our weaknesses than any other high priest is. Jesus is greater in his high priestly qualifications. He's greater in the order or lineage of his priesthood where everyone else was coming from uh, the line of Levi. We're going to see Jesus comes from a different order, the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is greater in the new covenant that he offers as high priest, which is a far greater covenant than the old covenant under Judaism. Jesus is greater in the fact that he is our sanctuary. Whereas the high priests of old, they built a sanctuary and had to go into a sanctuary made with hands. But Jesus is himself our sanctuary. Jesus is greater in the fact that he was once and for all the sacrifice for our sins. Where the high priest, they had a sacrifice again and again and again and again. They were never done with sacrificing because none of their sacrifices were a once for all sacrifice. It had to continually happen. So as the recipients of this letter are struggling with the thought of going back into Judaism, going back under the old covenant, going back under the sacrificial system, going back under all those things, Hebrews wants them to see, look at the greatness of what you have in Jesus, which is far superior to all that you had in the old covenant, far superior than the high priest, far superior than the sacrificial system. When posing that question of why, would you want to leave the greater to go to the lesser? And then the author gives two warnings in this section. The first is don't decline. Don't stop growing in your relationship with Jesus. Continue to mature. And the second warning is don't depart. Don't leave this amazing new covenant to go back under the old covenant of the law. Don't leave the wonderful sacrifice that is paid for all your sin to go back to a sacrificial system that constantly has to kill animals over and over again and doesn't fully satisfy the sin that needs to. So the first main area that Hebrews reveals is that Jesus is a greater person than all the great people in Judaism. The second is he's a greater priest than all the priests in Judaism. And the final main thing that Hebrews deals with of the fact that Jesus is greater is he has a greater purpose in life for all who follow him. So as it builds this case of how much greater Jesus is than all the things in Judaism, it gets personal. He's also greater for you. You see, in Judaism, you know, the Jewish people were looking to priests, they were looking to prophets, they were looking to great leaders, they were looking to religious leaders. They were the ones that say, hey, could you help us grow in maturity? Could you help us grow in our faith in God? Could you help us grow to become more godly? 
And Hebrews wants us to understand the person that is best suited to help you grow is Jesus. Far greater than all these other people that you look up to in Judaism, Jesus will help you grow in faith more than them all. And look how all these people of faith in the Old Testament that you exalt and look up to, it was Jesus who enabled them to be those great people of faith. He's the one who helped them to become that. And so he will help you and help me be greater in faith. But he's also the one that will help us be greater in enduring persecution, enduring the difficulties of life, because this was one of the struggles that they had of, you know, I don't know if I want to continue in Christianity because I'm enduring so much hardship and persecution for following Jesus. And and the author wants them to know, hey, there's no better person to help you through this than Jesus. Going away from him and going back to Judaism, that's not the answer. That's not what's going to help you get through this. And also, Jesus is the best one to help you grow to be greater in loving God and loving others. So as these recipients read this letter with the struggle of, man, do I want to go back into Judaism? Do I want to leave Jesus for that? The author of Hebrews wants them to see Jesus is so much greater, not only than everything in Judaism, but also in helping you become a faithful, godly follower of God. And the author gives some warnings as well in this section. Do not despise discipline. You see, if you want to be a faithful follower of God, if you want to be a a godly man, a godly woman, then you need to not despise the discipline of God. For whom God loves, He disciplines. He, He wants us to grow. He's going to bring that discipline into our life in order to help us grow And so the author here is giving this warning of, you know, Jesus is the best source of growth, but don't despise the way in which he works in your life. Don't despise the correction. Don't despise the discipline. It's all there for the purpose of you becoming more like him. So that's the outline of Hebrews. That's where we're headed. Those are the three major things that this book is going to deal with of how Jesus is greater. And I think it's very applicable to us today. And we can look at a lot of different ways that it's very applicable, but I think one of the most obvious is that we are a lot like the recipients of this letter, the Hebrews. You see, because of persecution and pressures of the world, the Hebrews had their attention and direction diverted and distracted from Jesus to other things. They were tempted, they were frightened, They were pressured into following other voices and serving other masters. They wanted to go back to their old life in Judaism because they thought things were better back then. You know, and we can often struggle in those same ways that we see with these believers today. The persecution and pressure of the world often gets our attention and direction diverted and distracted from Jesus to other things. It often causes us to follow other voices and serve other masters besides Jesus. And we get tempted to wanting to go back to the old life. I mean, when the nation of Israel is in the wilderness, they're constantly looking back to Egypt. And it's so interesting because Egypt was a place of slavery that they cried out, Lord, deliver us. And then finally, when he delivers them, oh, we want to go back. It was so great back in Egypt. That old life was so wonderful. And it's just such a, a, a funny thing when you look at it, but then you look at your own life and you realize, man, 
I do that as well. I look back at the life before Jesus with this fond memory of, oh, wasn't that sinful time so great? And wasn't the life before Jesus so wonderful? When, when we were in that, we were crying out, you know, we're so lost, we're so desperate, we want to get out. And then finally we've been delivered and we look back with this fondness of saying, oh, that life was great. You know, maybe I should stop following Jesus because it's so hard and it brings so much persecution from the world. Wouldn't it just be easier just to go back to the old life? Wouldn't it be more fun to go back to those old things that used to bring so much satisfaction and and so much, you know, enjoyment? And if those are the thoughts that we're having, one, they're lies, but two, we need to recognize just how great Jesus is. We need to understand that He is greater than anything this world can ever offer us. He's worth living for. No matter how difficult it gets, no matter how much persecution we suffer, He's worth it. He is great. Only when we recognize the greatness of Jesus and give Him His rightful place in our lives will everything else in life fall into its rightful place. So now that we've looked at some background information, hopefully have a a better idea of the big picture of what Hebrews is all about and the outline and direction of where we're going, we're going to start this morning by looking at the first three verses, which typically would just be an introduction in any other letter, but there's no introduction in this letter. The, the, The author just jumps right in to the meat of what he's trying to challenge his readers to understand. He wants them to have this first main thing that he's wanting them to get about Jesus, and that's the fact that Jesus is greater than the prophets. So he just goes right to it. There's no, you know, uh, nice, you know, peace be with you, God loves you, just gets straight into how Jesus is greater than the prophets. Now, this is important to understand that in Judaism, the prophets and the writings of the prophets were highly esteemed. 17 of the Old Testament letters are written by prophets about the prophets' lives. And so this was something very significant and very important in Judaism. So if you want to encourage people not to leave Judaism or not to leave Jesus and go back to Judaism, not to go back to these great prophets of Judaism, then one of the things you need to do is show how much greater Jesus is than these prophets. You know, these highly esteemed people, well, I just, Isaiah, if we just had him today, it'd be so great. And we just need a, another Jeremiah. And oh, if we just had the, the power of Elijah back. And, you know, all these thoughts that people might have had towards the prophets that were great men who God did great things through, but yet the author wants them to see that they don't come anywhere close to the greatness of Jesus. And so that is exactly what we're going to see here in the first three verses of how, much, how much greater Jesus is than the prophets. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says this. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power when He had by Himself purged our sin, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So here we have the author diving right into the first main thing that he wants us to understand. And he tells us, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past by the prophets. 
So the author is bringing up, hey, in the past, God spoke to us. He did it in various ways, but the people that he used mainly to speak to us were the prophets. And it's important to note that one of the main roles of the Old Testament prophets was to deliver the message that God had given to them to the people that God wanted them to deliver that message to. And usually that people group was the nation of Israel. We have other examples. Jonah goes to the Ninevites. But for the most part, the prophets of God were given messages by God to deliver to a certain group of people. And that people group was often the nation of Israel. Now, it's interesting that you know, these prophets utilize many different methods to communicate that. And I think this is what he's bringing up of you know, the different times and things. Of There's all these methods as you read through the prophets of how uh, they communicated the message of God, both in words and in actions, to the people of God. For example, the prophet Amos, he gave direct oracles from God. Malachi used a lot of questions and answers to cause the people to think. Ezekiel used symbols. Haggai preached sermons. Zacharias shared mysterious signs. Daniel shared visions. And then God told a couple of prophets to do some practical things that would share powerful messages that would be difficult to do. For example, Hosea, God told him to marry a prostitute. Why? To depict the unfaithfulness of Israel. God told Isaiah to walk around naked, depicting the nakedness of Israel. And so not only with their message through words, but also message through action, God, through the prophets, communicated to the nation of Israel. So the author of Hebrews says, in the past, God spoke through the prophets, but now he's making this contrast. So that's how it was in the past for us. That's how God spoke to us the majority of the time. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. So God, all the, since the, the beginning of the nation of Israel, all the way to the time of Jesus, God has spoken and spoken and spoken, and he's used prophets but now he's chosen to speak in an even greater way through his son. You see, the best way to communicate to someone is to do it yourself. If I wanted to let you guys know that I love you, you know, I could send a text, I could send an email, I could write a letter. I could even send someone else on my behalf to, to share the message for me. But the most effective way for me to communicate the message of love would be for me personally to come to you. That you could see my expressions, that you could see my body language, that you could hear the tone of my voice and hear the words of love coming from my mouth. That would be the most effective way for me to communicate love to you is to come in person and share it. Well, for hundreds of years, God had been speaking, speaking to the nation of Israel about all sorts of things, but, but one of the most important things about himself and who he was but you know, a lot of these messages were a little misunderstood. Some of them weren't fully complete because you got this prophet who gets kind of a, a little picture of God and, and this prophet a little different picture and, and then, then this prophet another one. And, and if you put them all together, you start to get you know, a much better picture of who God is. But God decides, you know what, I'm going to speak even more clearly. I'm going to speak in an even more powerful way than sending prophets to deliver my message. I'm going to send my own son to come and to personally speak, not just through words, but also through his life and through his actions and his sacrifice to the world. 
Jesus brought the ultimate message from God, and he did it in the way that would be best able to communicate that message. He came personally, and he personally delivered it. Bruce Hurt wrote this. If, his, as, if God has spoken in a spectrum of pure, variegated lights in the Old Testament, that the arrival of Jesus was like a prism who collects all these bands of pure light and focuses them into one final perfect and pure beam. You know, when I look at the prophets and all the different writings, it's kind of like what it is. You've got this wonderful you know, light here and light there and light there, but, you know... All, they're kind of separated and you don't see, you know, really the, the picture clearly. And then Jesus is like bringing them all together and shows you exactly the perfect picture of God. Now, in verses two through three, we see seven reasons that the author gives for why Jesus is greater than the prophets. So he talks about, hey, God spoke in various times in the past to the prophets. Now he has spoken through his son. And I want you to recognize how much greater his son is than the prophets of old. And these seven reasons are really so powerful that you can see when you go through them, well, this shows that Jesus is greater than anyone. Not just the Old Testament prophets, but anyone who's ever walked the face of the earth. And so the author gets right to the first point. Why is Jesus greater than the prophets? Well, the first reason why Jesus is greater than the prophets is he is the Son of God and heir of all things. Now, if you've ever read the prophets and you saw what God did through them and what he called them to do, you know, these were great men, great men who were used greatly by God. But guess what? They were not God's son. And they definitely could not claim that they were heir of all things. You see, Jesus is greater than the prophets because he isn't just a spokesperson for God. He is God. And he has all the inheritance as an heir Everything that God possesses is for Jesus as well. And this is one of those amazing truths that the Bible reveals to us. I mean, you read this about Jesus, and it's like, wow, that's so amazing. You know, he's the son of God, and because of that, he's the heir of all things. Just like, you know, you were the heir to your, your parents' wealth, or maybe heir to their debt, but whatever it is, you know, you get what your parents have, and if they have a lot, it's an amazing thing. And since the Father has everything... It's a wonderful thing to think of the inheritance that the son will receive. But the thing that the Bible reveals to us that's an amazing truth, we see this amazing truth in Romans 8, 16 and 17. It says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. One of the wonderful privileges of what we receive when we accept Jesus Christ into our life is that we become a child of God. And when we become a child of God, just like Jesus is the Son of God, we receive the inheritance. We, have, we are now heirs. And notice we're told here, joint heirs with Christ. Here we're realizing that Jesus, the Son of God, is the heir of all things. When you and I put our trust in Jesus, we also become children of God and are heirs of all things as well. And it's kind of a mind-boggling reality of the blessing that we've received through putting our faith in Jesus. And how crazy it would be to say, you know what, let's go back to Judaism. Let's walk away from the Son. Let's walk away from being a child of God and go back to what we were before. The second reason why Jesus is greater than the prophets is because he created everything. 
We're told, through whom also he made the worlds. Now, it's interesting, this Greek word translated worlds is aeon. It's where we get our English word eons. It means that Jesus made more than just the material world, which he did, but he also made the very ages. So history itself is created by Jesus. So think of this. Jesus is greater than the prophets because he literally created them, but also he created the world that they prophesied in and the history in which they lived in. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. I love to think that he who created all things is also our Savior, for he can create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. If I need a complete new creation, as I certainly do, he is equal to the task. You know, I think so often we're confident in the fact that Jesus is the creator, that he created everything. And if we're truly confident in the fact that Jesus could speak let there be lights, and there was, that he could speak and create everything, that we should be confident that he can make me into a new creation. That's what the Bible tells us happens when we put our faith into him, that we are a new creation. The old life has passed away. And sometimes we don't really accept that. We don't really believe that. We don't really trust that Jesus has the power to do that. But yeah, if he has the power to create everything, surely he has the power to take his creation and make it a new creation. And this is such a wonderful thing and such a a, a silly thing to think, man, I want to leave that. I want to leave the creator who made me a new creation to go back to something far less than who he is. And another challenge to these readers, don't even think about leaving Jesus. The third reason why Jesus is greater than the prophets is because he is the brightness of God's glory. Now, this Greek word translated brightness speaks of the radiance that shines from a source of light. God is light, and him there is no darkness at all. It's interesting here, when Jesus was on the earth, he really kind of had to mask the glory of God in humanity. And there was one moment while he was here that a couple of the disciples got to see that glory shine through. If you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, they see Jesus shining It's not like, you know, the sun was shining down on him. No, that light was coming from within. His own glory was coming through his flesh. And he allowed that glory, that that glory that he had as God to shine through at that moment when normally he kept it masked. This radiance, the brightness of God's glory in Jesus. David Guzik wrote this. Jesus is the beam of God's glory. We have never seen the sun, only the rays of its light as they come to us. Even so, we have never seen God the Father, but we see him through the rays of the Son of God. You know, in the Old Testament, it's interesting as you look at the temple and you have the holy place and it has the golden lampstand and so that produces light in here. But as the high priest would go into the holy of holies one time a year, there's no lamp. There's nothing to light. Well, how are they supposed to do this? You've got the Ark of the Covenant in there. They're supposed to sprinkle the blood. How are they going to see where to sprinkle anything? Where does the light come from? The light comes from God himself. As it says, he dwells between the cherubim there above the Ark of the Covenant. And literally, the light of God is what lit the Holy of Holies for the high priest to see. But that's just a wonderful picture of what the future will be like because Revelation speaks of the fact that when God creates a new heaven and a new earth... 
We're not going to have the same kind of light we do now. We have light from the sun, but notice what Revelation chapter 21, verse 23 says. Speaking of the new Jerusalem, the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And this is something that's kind of, you know, maybe hard for us to even picture or grasp because we're so used to light sources being like lights in this room or outside the light of the sun. But, you know, the new heaven and the new earth, there's not going to be sun. There's not going to be a need for sun. There's not going to be a need for the light of the sun because where is the light going to come from? Literally, it's going to come from Jesus himself. His glory is going to light up heaven and the new earth. And that's what we're told here, that Jesus is this glory, this light from God. Now, the prophets, you could say in some sense, and people even refer to them in this way, they were a light to Israel. A light to Israel in the sense that they were kind of that lamp pointing them to who God was, pointing them to what God told them to do and told them how to live. But they are not the light. They were just directing people to the actual light who is Jesus. God literally shines through him because he is God. The fourth reason why Jesus is greater than the prophets is because he is the express image of God's person. You know, as the prophets wrote, one of the most important things that they wrote of was prophecies about the coming Messiah. They wrote a lot about God, they, they painted this picture about what God was like, but it's kind of fragmented. You know, even now you see there's 315 prophecies about the Messiah, about what he'd be like, but you have to go through a lot of different prophets to take those different fragments and put them together and see, okay, there's, you know, the, the picture of Jesus, but, you know, if you just have this one little piece of he's going to suffer here and this other little piece of he's going to be betrayed there, and, you know, you, you kind of miss the, the bigger picture of who Jesus was like. So no prophet had the full picture of God. He just gave this fragmented piece. But Jesus comes along, and he is the express image of God's person. There's no fragmentation in him. He's exactly the express image. You see everything about God when you see Jesus. This Greek word here, translated express image, was used to describe an image on wax after it was stamped with a seal. And back in that time with letters, with anything that was um, shipped in, in crates or whatever, they would always seal it. You have this insignia ring to, to prove that it was yours, and the wax and the seal would be identical to one another. The shape of the seal would go into the wax, and you could see it clearly to know, oh, this is so-and-so's seal, so this belongs to them. So what it's saying is that Jesus is the exact image of God because he is God. Or as we might say today to a child, you know, he's the spitting image of his father. Jesus is identical to God because he is God. Now, if you remember back in John chapter 14, verse 9, as Philip and Jesus are, are having a conversation, Jesus says this, He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? Hey, show us the Father and it'll be sufficient for us, Jesus. He's like, what are you talking about? If you've seen me, you know what God looks like. We're identical. I am God. Jesus wants us to understand, wanted his disciples to understand, I'm the express image of God. I came to reveal who God is. Here I am. You want to know what God's like? Just look at me because that's who I am. So the question for these readers, 
Why go back to the fragmented pictures of God when you have the express image in Jesus? Why would you leave the greater to go to the lesser? The fifth reason why Jesus is greater than the prophets is because he upholds all things by the word of his power. This is an amazing thing. We looked at in John chapter 1, this reality of Jesus being the creator of all things. You go back to Genesis chapter 1, and you see how Jesus created all things. He did it through words. Let there be light. Boom. There it goes. The power of his words were so great that he could just speak, and something from nothing now exists. But here we're told something that's even you know, just as impressive. Jesus not only created with the power of his words, something from nothing, but now we're told he also upholds those things. He upholds all things through that same power, the power of his words, which he spoke the world into existence. He also has the power to uphold everything, all things by that power. Now, the idea behind the Greek word translated uphold is better thought as to maintain. You see, there's this Greek mindset. You have that picture of, you know, Atlas kind of just having the the world on his shoulders and he's kind of just, you know, holding it there, but it's not active. That's not what this word is talking about at all. As Jesus upholds, it's not some passive thing that just sits by. No, he's actively holding things together through his own power. So Jesus does this by the power of his words. Now, the prophets often spoke of the power of God. Many of them experienced the power of God in supernatural ways where God worked through them and did miracles through them. But in themselves, they didn't have the power to uphold anything. In themselves, everything would have crumbled if they were the source of what we needed to have someone uphold. And this is another reason why Jesus is so much more powerful and greater than the prophets. Now, Jesus upholding everything by his power is one aspect of importance because it shows how great he is. But I think on a more personal level, it reminds us that he's in full control of our lives. In any situation that we find ourselves, we need to realize, hey, Jesus is the one who upholds everything. He's the one who's in full control. He's the one who has all the power. And so often we kind of, in general, we can say, oh yeah, Jesus uphold things. But then all of a sudden things aren't so good in my life personally. And I start to wonder, Jesus, are you in control here? I mean, look at all these things that are happening. Look at all these problems. And and these readers, look at the persecution that's coming my way. Are you really in full control? Does your power really uphold everything? And we need to come to that truth that yes, And then look to him as the source of the one who can get me through. I'm not going to look to the prophets of old. I'm not going to look to the religious leaders. I'm not going to look to these great men in Judaism when I have the source of power in Jesus. He upholds everything. He's got everything under control. He's the one who can get me through whatever life throws my way. And so once again, this challenge to the readers and a challenge to us, why would we ever go to anything, whether it's Judaism or old life, anything, why would we ever abandon what is greatest to go for something lesser? In Judaism, there's a lot of great things in Judaism, a lot of great men in Judaism, a lot of great women in Judaism. There's a lot of great stuff, but it's saying, man, I'm going to trade what is greatest for what is 
great, and in some regards, what is far less. But why would we ever do that? The sixth reason why Jesus is greater than the prophets is maybe the best one of all. He purged our sins. Now, this Greek word translated purge means to purify. Some of your translations probably have it purified. And it speaks of purifying by removing contaminants. Jesus purified our sins. He removed the contaminant of sin in our life. Though our sins were as scarlet, the Bible says he has made it like white as snow. Oh, wonderful. How did he do it? Well, this is the hardest thing that he ever did. He had to give his own life on the cross in order for you and I to have our sins purified. Now, it's interesting that the prophets, you know, one of their main messages was a message of warning. You read through the prophets and you add up all the different messages that they gave. The predominant message is a warning against the nation of Israel that they're sinners and they need to repent. You see that over and over again. So the prophets were used by God to warn of sin, to lead the nation of Israel to repent of their sin. But something we need to understand is they could do nothing to purify the nation of Israel from their sin. Oh, we can tell you you're sinners. We can tell you you're dirty. We just have no ability to clean you. I can point out the problem, but I have no solution to your problem. I have no way to fix your problem. Where Jesus not only can say, yeah, you're sinful, but I can purify you. I can deal with it, and I already have on the cross. I took your sin. I took the judgment. I paid the price so that you could be pure, white as snow, so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be a new creation. This is another reason why Jesus is greater than the prophets. They could do nothing for the sin of the world. Nobody could, except for Jesus who was able to purify us from our sins. William MacDonald wrote this. The creator and the sustainer became the sin bearer. In order to create the universe, he only had to speak. In order to maintain and guide the universe, he only had to speak. But in order to put away our sin uh, once for all, he had to die on the cross of Calvary. It's staggering to think that the sovereign Lord would stoop to become the sacrificial lamb. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all, as Isaac Watts' hymn says. This is kind of a real amazing deep thought. We just looked at the fact that Jesus created everything with just words. He maintains, he sustains, he holds everything together with just words. But guess what? Words weren't enough to pay for your sin. Words weren't enough to pay for my sin. The words that are so powerful to create uh, something out of nothing weren't enough to deal with our sin. He actually had to come, become one of us, give his life for us. And this is why this is one of the, the, the greatest of this whole list. Yeah, he's got amazing power, but what he was willing to do to become one of us and be that sacrificial lamb so that we could be forgiven. No prophet could do that. The seventh reason why Jesus is greater than the prophets is because he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Being seated at the right hand of the Father really brings two wonderful pictures. The first picture is a position of majesty and honor and glory. It's the greatest position there is. And there's only one deserving, God himself. 
He's the only one that sits on that throne. Jesus is the only one who's able to sit there because he's the only one who deserves it. And when you look through the book of Revelation, that's something you see over and over. Worthy is the lamb. He's the one. He's the only one who deserves the honor. He's the only one who deserves to be in that place of glory and honor on the throne at the right hand of the Father. So that's a wonderful aspect of, of just seeing this and you kind of compare that to the prophets. Yeah, yeah, what prophet deserves that? Even though they did great things, even though many led people to the God, even though many people were faithful, even though many people were used in powerful ways, none of them deserve to sit at the right hand of the Father. Not even close, because Jesus is so much greater than them. But there's another picture that's important to understand when you think of being seated at the right hand of the Father, and it speaks of a finished work. You know, if you look through the temple, the holy place, you have all these different things in there, the table of showbread, you got the menorah there, the golden lampstand, you go into the Holy of Holies, you got the Ark of the Covenant. You walk through there, something you're never going to find is a seat, a place to sit down. Because the priest's work was never done. They constantly had to sacrifice. And guess what? When the Day of Atonement came and the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and he sacrificed the animal and he sprinkled the blood, next year he does it again. Next year he does it again. The following year he does it again. It's never going to end because those sacrifices were not once for all. The priest's job was never finished. One of the things we're going to see of how Jesus is such a much greater high priest than the high priest before him. But when Jesus was on the cross... He says those words that are so important for us to understand. It is finished. This sacrifice is it. It's once for all. There's no need for another one. And now he can go sit at the right hand of the Father because the work that he came to do to redeem us has been completed. Whereas the high priest, it's never done. The work's never finished. And this is just another wonderful truth of how much greater Jesus is than the prophets, than anyone in the Old Testament or in the New Testament or ever to exist. When you look at the list of seven things here about Jesus, just think of all the great prophets in the Old Testament. Pick maybe the one that you, you know, really love the most, and maybe you're, you, know, you love all the miracles, and you're kind of more of an Elijah or Elisha person, or, or you, maybe you love you know, seeing what you know, Isaiah or, or young Jeremiah, or whatever it is. You, you pick that prophet. And if they were to be able to stand here, and we were to be able to compare them and their life to these seven things about Jesus, and we were to say, you know, can, can you say any of these things about yourself? You mean you're great. What you've done is great. Most of us would probably wish that we could have that kind of impact in our life, that God would use us in that way. And so we bring these great prophets of God before us and we ask, is there anything on this list that you could say about yourself? Well, they couldn't say that they were the Son of God and heir of all things. They couldn't say that they created everything. They couldn't say that they are the brightness of God's glory. They couldn't say they are the expressed image of God's person. They couldn't say that they uphold all things by the word of their power. They couldn't say that they purged our sins. They couldn't say they are now seated at the right hand of the Father because their work is finished. 
You see, all of them are so inferior to Jesus. He is so much greater than all of them. And so as these readers are considering this horrible idea of leaving Jesus, leaving Christianity to go back to Judaism, to go back to being under the prophets, to go back to being under the old covenant and the old sacrificial system and all that Judaism brought. The author of Hebrews wants them to recognize this is such a bad idea. Why? Because you have everything in Jesus. He is so much greater than all of those things. Why would you leave that to go back to something far inferior, to go back to something far worse than what you have presently? And I just want to leave with a practical challenge for us. If, if you're tempted, and I know, I know we are tempted, but if you've been giving in to the temptation, the world wants to tempt us to, to leave what we have in Jesus, to leave that relationship and start to pursue the things of the world. And the enemy loves to whisper in our ear, oh, wasn't this so wonderful when you used to do this? Wasn't it so great when you were with those people? Wasn't that relationship that you had before so wonderful? Wasn't that party life so great? Wasn't it nice to get high? Wasn't it great to get drunk? Wasn't it so fun when you watched these things and did that stuff? And there's this constant lie of trying to remind us of things in a way that we look at with fondness and we're tempted tempted to say you know what yeah maybe what the world offers is greater maybe what the world offers would you know be something that would be uh, better for my life bring me more joy bring me more peace bring me more satisfaction if we're listening to those lies and we're even considering following those or perhaps already following some of those things we need to remember here what the author of hebrews challenges us with jesus is greater than anything this world could give us greater than anything your old life could give you greater than any relationship different than the one with him especially relationships that we know are not godly ones when you and I receive, what you and I receive from Jesus is greater than anything or anyone. And the reason why is because Jesus is greater than anything or anyone. So the main theme of this book, something that we'll see over and over, and hopefully by the time we finish it, this will be something that will just be saturated in your mind and you'll just think of it all the time. Jesus is greater, but it moves from that to it should cause us to live a greater life in Jesus. Don't just say, wow, he's still great, wonderful, and just go live in life as you've been doing it. No, I want to be greater in my life with Jesus because of the greatness of Jesus. I want him to help me be a great person of faith, a great person of hope, a great person of love, as we'll get to the end of the book and the challenges for us to do that, but recognizing it's possible because the God I serve is so great that he can do great things in and through me. So my challenge for you this week is let the greatness of Jesus cause you to live a greater life for him.